think Perry and I should do a podcast. So anyway, I think that'd be good. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. All right, now I have to tell you, I may be filling in for Sky this week, but I am not talking about Brian Lewis's diet, <laughs> Brian Lewis's <laughs> surfing, or Brian Lewis's nose hair. <laughs> Well, Senator Mike Woodard is our co-host of the podcast this week. Senator Woodard, thank you for being with us. I am happy to be here, and uh, thanks for the invitation. I hope Sky is uh, enjoying good vacation time. I got a Snapchat from her today. They were on their way to Epcot. Standing in line at Epcot in early August doesn't seem very appealing to me. Me neither. I'm, I've <laughs> Sky, I hope you're having fun, and uh, we can't wait to hear next week all about Epcot and Disney World and all of those things you did. Yeah, well, the kids looked happy in the photo. Let's start off by talking about Medicaid expansion, Senator. We have been talking on the podcast for a couple weeks now that there's a deal supposedly going on between the House and the Senate and Governor Cooper, but we have yet to see a deal come out. And we thought it would have happened by now. Something would have been floated. Something would have at least been leaked. What is going on? You know, Brian, I think we're stuck on on a deal. Last week and after the skeleton sessions, uh, the middle of last week, both uh, Senator Berger and Speaker Moore uh, had their press gaggles that they've done uh, usually do during the de- normal days. Uh, both had press gaggles and both talked about that. And it seems to me what we heard from them And what we've heard since then is that we are just stuck. Negotiations have bogged down over non-Medicaid expansion issues that were in the Senate bill. Certificate of need and scope of practice for nurses. Senator Berger, in his press gaggle, said that as long as, and he pointed the finger at the hospitals. He said as long as the hospitals remain as intransigent as they are, I don't see that we're going to make any progress. Literally 10 minutes later, Speaker Moore, in his press gaggle, said, well, the bill that the Senate sent us is just a non-starter. And, of course, the Senate bill had expansion, but then it had CON reform and expanding scope of practice for nurses and a few other things, telemedicine and a few other pieces in there. The Speaker countered with his bill, which was the delay, vote and negotiate, come back from with CMS opinion from Washington, vote in December. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was the speaker's counter before we adjourned. And we all left town, assuming these three uh, parties, pro tem, speaker, governor, would work this out. But then I think this week, um, as a lot of your listeners will know, Governor Cooper ratcheted it up a little bit. Yeah, he did. With, his, uh, with an op-ed um, in the McClatchy newspapers, News Observer, Shard Observer, Durham Morning Herald. And he points to um, what he called a fight about allowing more competition for hospitals. And he called out the hospitals and said, they need to step up now and do what's right. Wow. Which I think was to negotiate around certificate of need and sort of favor the Senate proposal. So Governor Cooper and Senator Berger have similar messages here. Well, they all can speak for themselves. <laughs> of course, of um, course. And, and, and Governor Cooper was clear that he, he wasn't really weighing in necessarily. And to their credit, the leadership in the Department of Health and Human Services has not really taken a stand on certificate of need. But Governor Cooper, what, six and a half years ago, when he first said he was running for governor um, in his first campaign, has made Medicaid expansion his top priority. Yeah. And so he has not wavered from that. And if there's some other issues that creep into a Medicaid expansion bill, the governor still wants Medicaid expansion. I think his position is we'll let the other things kind of fall out. We'll negotiate around those. But now it seems at least that Governor Cooper and Speaker Moore point the finger, or, or uh, Senator Berger point the finger at the hospitals. But Speaker Moore um, is not willing to move on those things either. That's my feeling. We're kind of stuck there. Do you have 
a crystal ball that uh, you predict when we will get a deal. Do you think it'll be this year? Do you think we're putting this to the long session? What's your estimation? I think it's hard to say right now because, you know, we're still in this place where we're stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, but every month we wait, yeah. we're losing somewhere in the neighborhood of $520 million a month. That's $17 million a day in federal funding that would come to support our Medicaid services to serve those people who are in the coverage gap in North Carolina. Um, So there is a point when we're going to have to, um, somebody's going to have to bite the bullet here and blink. Um, When that's going to be, I don't know. Let's turn to abortion politics. We've been talking about it on the podcast since the Dobbs decision on June 24th when Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, those decisions were struck down and the decision has been punted down to the states. This week, Kansas, a Republican state, if there ever was one, had a constitutional amendment put on their ballot which would have removed the right to abortion from their state constitution. And Senator, 58% of voters rejected that constitutional amendment, and it sent shockwaves through the political world. And I imagine it has gotten the attention of the leadership here in North Carolina. I I think you're right. And my thought about this is, this is the first election where abortion was front and center in the post-Roe world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just thinking about North Carolina, we always, Roe was always kind of a backstop. You always knew that was going to be the federal law. So over the years, we would, um, the General Assembly would consider legislation that would some way restrict or limit um, the access to abortion, never fully get rid of it because Roe was that backstop. Now that that backstop has been removed, um, people recognize that this isn't a hypothetical anymore. And I think what you saw from a lot of Kansas voters and in the um, post-mortem after this election, what you've seen is a lot of folks, independents, Republicans, were saying, whoa, I didn't expect this, so uh, I had to vote no. So we get past the election. And I think most folks are betting on Republicans to at least keep a majority in the General Assembly. But Speaker Tim Moore made a statement this week that got the attention of many political observers out there. He was talking about the two extremes that he's dealing with within the Republican Party as it pertains to abortion. And I'm going to read a quote that he gave the media this week. He says, you got some folks who think abortion ought to be legal up until five minutes before a baby's born. That's the most crazy extreme position. Then you've got those who feel like from the beginning, even if you're thinking about having sex, you can't have an abortion. These are all extremes. Do you think the Dobbs decision and this punting back to the General Assembly is going to expose some rifts within that Republican caucus? Do you keep it at 20 weeks? Do you go to 15 weeks? Do you go down to conception? Well, you're asking me to predict yeah. Uh, the Republican caucus and not being a member of the Republican caucus, that's hard for me to do. But you have a very good seat observing. Them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when these uh, Senate and, Re- and House Republican caucuses debate this because I you're going to see both sets of caucuses, Democrat and Republican, House and Senate, will be lobbied very hard by interest groups. Yeah. Uh, on the Republican side, um, for tighter restrictions, even for a full-on um, repeal of abortion from groups like the Values Coalition, Family Policy Council, conservative religious groups are going to push the Republican caucus. And, and they're going to, Speaker Moore said it, he's got a wide range of views on that. Mm-hmm. On the Democratic side, you'll see uh, the pressure to maintain at least the status quo 20 weeks here in North Carolina from Planned Parenthood, from ACLU, from progressive women's groups, um, and not to negotiate off of 20 weeks. Uh, you know, is it 15 weeks or is it down to, as, as you said, uh, life begins at conception and no abortion after that point? 
uh, it's going to be really interesting. But to your point earlier, will there be a simple Republican majority or simple rep- or a Republican supermajority? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if any bill that goes too far will get a veto from Governor Cooper. Mm-hmm. And then can that veto be sustained? Right. And that, that's going to be the critical question. Speaking of this coming election, we're going to have a new political party in North Carolina that is at least recognized by the State Board of Elections. However, they may not have a candidate on the ballot because their approval by the State Board of Election after some drama and delay, they were approved after the July 1 deadline, which is when they have to name their candidates. The Green Party is North Carolina's newest party, Senator. Do you think that the courts are going to intervene and allow the Green Party to have candidates slated for this election? Or do you think the General Assembly is going to step in and help the Green Party get candidates on the ballot? Well, so let's deal with the court question first. The Green Party has sued the state board to allow their candidates to be on the ballot this fall. So the courts will have to intercede. They will act. Now, mm-hmm. the question is, will they act? Bef- is, when will they act, I guess, is the question. Will it be in time for the November election, or do they wait and say, uh, you'll have to allow your folks to get on? That window is closing very quickly. Okay. Um, uh, our state uh, elections director has said, She's got a few weeks here, but, you know, things start happening because uh, mail-in ballots are going to start being printed and being sent out here in, in a matter of weeks before yeah. this election. I mean, we're less than 100 days before the election, so, you know, you got to start backing up from that. So um, if the courts are going to force the Green Party candidates to be placed on the ballot, they're going to have to act quickly. Now, your second question was, will the General Assembly get involved? Knowing the General Assembly with my 10 years of experience, I think we're going to stay away from it until the courts rule. I see. We ain't going to get in the middle of it now. We're not in session, except for those, you know, skeleton sessions we've scheduled each month. And I don't think anybody wants to come back and take this up. And again, because that window's closing, is is narrowing. Um, I don't, General Assembly, I think it's going to wait for the courts. Now, will we take some action in the long session? I think we'll have to wait and see what the court decision is on that. Let's turn to unaffiliated voters. They are, by the way, the largest group of registered North Carolina voters, and they have filed a lawsuit saying they want seats on the State Board of Elections. So the State Board of Elections is basically a five-member board The sitting governor gets three of those seats, and the other party gets two seats. So basically, the Democrats have three seats on the State Board of Election, and the Republicans have two seats. The unaffiliated voters are saying they deserve seats on the State Board of Election. You mentioned the State Board of Elections, but remember, all 100 counties also have their local boards of elections. Right. And they make important decisions about where early where voting sites will be, what early voting is going to look like. That is left up to each county where to do that. And that has, um, over the last decade, led to some interesting decisions, interesting court fights, mm-hmm. uh, charges back and forth about where site was or, or wasn't, what hours it was open. Those are also five-member boards, 3-2, with the governor's party having the majority. So how will the unaffiliated voters be selected? Democratic Party nominates at the state level the three, or they give the governor a slate of Democrats. Republican Party gives the governor a slate of Republicans, and the governor has to choose from those slates. The local level, same thing. Local party nominates its three Democrats, two Republicans now, since the governor is a Democrat. Where do the unaffiliated voters come from? There's not a party structure to nominate them. How would the governor pick a member, two members, whatever that number's going to be? How would you pick it at the local level? Don't know. Would the state board of elections have to be restructured? Right. Do you do where you have three from the governor's party, two from the um, other party? 
two unaffiliated. That's one thought. It's a seven-member board. Um, and then how do those local boards change? Do they change their number and structure? So I think this might be a conversation for the mm. long session. Right. Sounds like a chicken and egg argument. The unaffiliated voters who, again, by definition, are unaffiliated, disorganized, they're going to have to create some sort of structure, it feels. I, yeah, I, I have not thought through what that looks like. And I don't know, perhaps our friends at Common Cause have thought about this. And I've not read any of the lawsuit that they filed. But, you know, and, and maybe they haven't gotten that far yet. And the court just says put somebody in there and it'll probably kick to the legislature for us to figure out what that would change if the court orders unaffiliated voters to be on these uh, state and local boards of election. But it does bring up a bigger question. And I know, Senator, you are a proud Democrat, but there does seem to be some dissatisfaction with the two major parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Not only is the unaffiliated voter out there the largest block of voters, it is the fastest growing political party. Do you see a situation do you see a future in which the two-party system is in jeopardy? And let me add another um, uh, caveat to your question. Younger voters are choosing unaffiliated more as well. Voters under 25 in North Carolina are approaching, I th it's over 50%, it may be approaching 60% unaffiliated. So, yeah. so short-term, I don't think much will change because so much of the two-party system is baked into um, what we do. Um, and again, lawsuits and um, a future legislation may change that. So um, will the two-party system erode? Probably. Will it change? Probably. Um, I'd love to get our uh, old friend Andre Bellevue from the John Locke Foundation, <laughs> a fellow Anglophile in here. Um, he and I often talk about um, the, the parliamentary system in, in uh, the United Kingdom and what's going on over there. Yeah. Um, would we ever move that far? I don't know. I mean, does is there a Green Party? Is there a Libertarian Party? Is there the Constitution Party that was in for a, a while and then was decertified um, ultimately? Um, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting. It's going to be an interesting change. Short term, no. Long term, I think the question is wide open. Yeah, and what does it look like long term? Sure. So, Senator, this week we had Senator Jim Perry stop by the office, and he sat down with Sky David, my colleague, who is vacationing this week, and she reluctantly agreed to this interview. She at first did not want to do it, but we persuaded her to do it. Senator Perry talks to Sky about her life, her education, her career, and the craft of lobbying. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Okay, and now the best part of flipping the script, actually talking to someone who's interesting. This is going to be <laughs> well, then you have the wrong person here. <laughs> no, no, we are going to pry into that mind of Sky David and get you to share some information with people that they'll find to be interesting. So, you know, let's start off with something pretty easy and comfortable, and we'll just walk slowly down this path. Great. Tell us as much about yourself from a personal standpoint as you are comfortable with, like where you're born, educational background, your family, you know, how do you like to spend time, um, just whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, I grew up in Southern Illinois, so a very small town of about 3,000 folks. Everyone here thinks I'm from Chicago. We're about six hours south of Chicago. Everyone in our town would like Chicago to fall into the lake. That's how we feel about <laughs> Chicago, where I'm from. I lived there until I went to college at the U of I, which is the University of Illinois, 
big Illini fan. If you listen to the podcast, you know that. And I was an ag major there. And I really thought I wanted to do ag policy. Our public policy happened to fall within the ag school there. So I have an agriculture and consumer economics degree. And then I came out to law school after that. Which is a a typical path, right? (laughs) (laughs) Ag undergrad. So why law school? When I was in college, we had this program kind of like your honors program where you had to do extra projects every semester. Being in the ag school, there were only a couple of projects to choose from. So one was like about growing tomatoes and then there was a domestic violence project. So I chose the domestic violence project and I spent my extra time on this project. We interviewed folks. It's actually a study on affluent people in domestic violence relationships. So there's not a lot of research in that. And we focused on the North Shore of Chicago. If you've ever seen the movie Mean Girls, that's where that was focused mm-hmm. as well. A lot, a lot of mean people up north, I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah. We had seven or eight women that we interviewed there. And I just saw the system fail Mm -hmm. person after person. These are people with everything at their disposal. You saw these women who were rich and their husbands were rich or their ex-partner was rich. And we had one woman who was a corporate attorney. So she knew how to use the system, if Mm -hmm. you will. And she filed every motion she could to get her child's custody. The court still gave 50-50. And this was in Cook County. So there's a ton of corruption there Mm -hmm. but you know there was some paying off of judges sort of thing and she was very worried about her child and she said that when it was time for him to go with his abusive father he would hold on to the banister at the on her stairs and he would say like don't make me go but she had to and when I was in my first year of law school she called and said He killed him. Oh, wow. You see that it affects everyone. You know, we're used to hearing more of your low income stories, which are also tragic. But I really focused on that. And then when I was in high school, actually, I was on the Illinois State Board of Education's Student Advisory Committee, which I loved. I loved going to Springfield. I really wanted to live in Springfield. And I worked on a bill. I gave a presentation to the board and I said we should make this law and it turned out that it then went to the house and the senate in illinois and became a law i was like this is pretty cool you can do this pretty easy and so i saw like a the way the system could work if you had an idea i contacted all of these other states i did i I clearly wasn't doing a lot of like at school work i was doing all of this um you you were an unregistered (laughs) lobbyist is what you were you should have been prosecuted this is ridiculous yeah i was i was not that cool but i loved like i loved digging into um this research project and so i saw the system work in policy and then i saw it fail on the legal side tell me a little more about your family growing up so i was adopted i had a very good life and i have recognized that throughout my life that had my life continued on the path that i was on i would be in a very different place and my parents have given me all the opportunities so in the were world. Were you adopted as an infant or older? I was older. Okay. And you're the mom and dad that raised you. So tell me a yep. little about them. I love my parents. My mom, she is a registered nurse. And when I was growing up, she worked in critical care. And so there were nights, actually, when there would be a car accident on the side of the road. And she would stop and give someone CPR and come in with blood really? all over her. Yeah, she is just a good Samaritan. Yeah. yeah. yeah good. When I was in maybe junior high or high school, she stopped working as a nurse and really has just taken on some folks in our church as her projects. Mm. If folks need insulin or whatever the needs have been, she has really been the caretaker for the folks in our church and then our other family members who have had medical issues. She's really the only nurse in our family. Mm-hmm. And my dad works for Edward Jones. He's a financial advisor. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So either one of them talked to you about law school. Is that a decision you 
something you always wanted to do or you sort of grew into that or how did that happen? I always say, this is so weird, but I was one of my friends, she lived out in the country. I was at her house and her dad was one of the, one of the only people at the time who I knew worked in like internet Mm -hmm. and he sold ads to Google. And at the time I didn't understand what that meant. He asked me, I think I was in fourth grade or something what do you want to be when you get older? And I said, a fashion designer. And he said, (laughs) you're too smart. Pick something else. Wow. (laughs) So I always say that's how I came into saying, all right, well, I guess I could be an attorney. So I've got to ask about your name uh, because, you know, I see the name Sky and I'm, you know, I'm old enough to be your dad. So I'm guessing your parents aren't old enough to be hippies. Uh, so tell me about the name. Yeah, I am named after the Isle of Skye in Scotland. And my brother's name is Scott, but <laughs> it, it's a very common name over there. Okay. So it's more unique here. And I also get like very annoyed when people have the name Skylar and they're like, no, my name is Sky too. And I'm like, no, that's my whole name. Your name is Skylar. Take a seat. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you went to law school, you know, yeah. out of the uh, the ag track to law yeah. school, which is very common. Um, <laughs> and then you, you chose lobbying as a career. What led you to lobbying? It's interesting that when I went to law school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I had seen all of these different paths. And I think most kids, when they go to law school, they're not really sure. After my first year, I interned at the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and I had this really great supervising attorney, and she encouraged me to do what I wanted to do. I I got to work on cool projects, really policy-centered, and she was leaving town for a couple of days, and she said, why don't you go down to the General Assembly and be with our lobbyists for a few days and see how that side of things work. And so I went with him at the time. Alex Miller was their lobbyist. And I spent maybe two days with him. And I was like, no, this is fun. I want to be here. Mm-hmm. And so the next summer, I interned for Alex. And what's interesting is that Alex was actually Brian's intern 10 years ago. Oh, Brian is an old man. I always forget how old he is. <laughs> And I remember the first time he introduced me to Brian and he said he runs triathlons and stuff, but he's always eating. And at the time (laughs) we saw him, he was eating popcorn from the sergeant at arms. That's funny. What what a small world. I think it's cool that you... um You've gone to law school. You're you're an attorney, but you're you're still a good person, which is so rare. You know, I mean, I'm just kidding. About <laughs> That's that objective. <laughs> if I were to ask your friends, people you grew up with or you know very well, and I say, hey, you know, what's what's Sky do? What's what's a lobbyist do? What, what, how would they describe that? So, in preparation for this interview, I asked a couple of people, and most of them said, I don't know. I think it is tough. I. I actually have a dual role here where I lobby in-house here at New Frame, but also I am the staff attorney at the Coalition Against Sexual Assault. So I do direct services, and that means that if someone were to call my office number at NC CASA, it comes through to my cell phone. There are times when I tell Brian, like, I need confidentiality at this moment, or I'll tell someone on the phone, you don't have confidentiality right now. So I go back and forth between the two roles. But in my lobbying role, I'm not sure that people understand what I do. But my mom always says that when they're on vacation or she had an incident when they were on vacation and somebody asked what her kids do. And she said I was a lobbyist. And the lady was like, that is the worst profession, you know, kind of just like went off on my mom about it. And my mom was like, <laughs> my mom got in a little argument with this lady. and was like, you don't know what she does. She lobbies for good things, you know? Right, and of course, right. I'm sure that lady was very moved by it. <laughs> that's, uh, no, no, she's one of the two good lobbyists out there. Man. I think that's pretty common because there are a lot of common myths about lobbyists, right? That it's you sell your soul and it's all for money and it's... You know, I've gotten to know you over the last few years, and I I know how bought in you are to your your clients and the causes, uh, especially when it comes to sexual assault, domestic violence, and those issues. Can you think of any other really common myths or, you know, thoughts that people have about the lobbying profession or ideas that you just don't think are, are accurate? 
I think a lot of folks just think you pay for what you get. You know, you buy off legislators or something. But we always say, like, we have to build trust. This is an industry based on trust. And so if I were to lie to you and you find out about it, I'm done. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so you have to build relationships. And I think folks don't maybe understand that that those those take a long time, just like any other relationship in your life. Mm -hmm. You have to learn about people and build trust to be able to move forward and and for them to understand you and you to understand them. It takes a while. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. So if you were a lawmaker and you had this, you know, never ending revolving door of lobbyists coming to see you, tell me how Sky David would deal with lobbyists. How would those interactions be? How would you, you know, what would your approach be with lobbyists? I don't know that I would be the most social lawmaker. I'm not the most social lobbyist. I am not great at small talk. So I'm more of a, like, give me the facts type of person. Give me the facts. You have 20 minutes. Go ahead. So I think maybe that would be my, like, straight to the point sort of approach. Yeah, so you, you, just the, the mealy mouth, small talk, hey, how you doing stuff. That's not you, huh? Yeah, that's why I have Brian otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, see you never. Yeah, I, I got it. Right. So, you know, when you think about the job, what is your favorite part of what you do? This might be different for me, I guess, than some other lobbyists because I am, I'm really bought into our clients and specifically the issues that you named. Sometimes I have to think about it on a 30,000 foot view. You are doing these things and maybe no one knows that the reason that this law went into place is because you worked really hard for it. But knowing, like, I can go to bed at night and think about this really impacted someone's life. Or I'll have someone call me and I'll say, oh, there is a law. We just passed a law for this two years ago. You can do this and this is going to help you. And that person starts crying and saying, oh, my God, this could save my life. That sort of feedback, knowing that what you're doing is helping North yeah. Carolinians. Meaningful. And yeah, that'll get me out of bed for as long as I can think of. Yeah, that's a good place to be to find that in life. So what's the uh, what's the worst part of the job? What, what do you like the least? Um, so maybe I kind of mentioned this, small talk. I'm, I don't... <laughs> I don't enjoy fundraisers and, you know, just kind of walking around and like just talking to people. I like to have Brian with me like a safety blanket. He does the talking. And then if somebody has a technical question, I am there to answer it. I'm just not social in the way that he is. Well, I I just want to say for all of the uh, regular listeners out there who uh, appreciate that Brian is also a safety blanket for you because... (laughs) We all know that you provide parking lot security for him and, and keep him safe as you walk out to the car. So it's good that it's a two-way relationship. We're, we're thankful for that. So t- tell me, do you have a funny story or something that occurred? Uh, you might have messed up in your career or something funny or awkward with a lawmaker early on that you could share with your, your listeners? I had a very awkward interaction back when I was interning and I was working on a domestic violence issue. And I have to say that Alex really gave me a lot of leeway when I was interning for him. He let me do all domestic violence. He really didn't like crowd me or anything. This was my first solo conversation with a lawmaker. So I'm by myself. I'm nervous. And at the time, I think I wasn't to the point where I understood that lawmakers are just other people. Like, right. it's, it's very normal. <laughs> but instead, it was like, it was nerve-wracking, the power dynamic. And I went to talk to a lawmaker about a domestic violence issue. And she just looked at me. And we were in a doorway. And she said, you know, most of those reports are fake. And just shut the door on me. And I just stood there so defeated and thought, well... I don't think she liked me. And that was kind of my, that was my first conversation with a lawmaker. Well, there's a dose of humility for you to start (laughs) off with, right? Okay, so it's summertime. And uh, the General Assembly is not in session, but lobbyists still have to work, right? I mean, that's probably one of the uh, miss 
conceptions out there that um, nothing goes on you guys aren't in session i know you spend a lot of time talking to clients doing research i know you call lawmakers and you guys want meeting with lawmakers because you request meetings with me and and the others so tell us a little about the time that you know how do you spend your days when we're not down there well my work days i think are fairly similar when we're in the off session, I live down the street, so I walk to the office every day. So oftentimes people will see me. I pretty much just walk Person Street to Blunt Street in sort of a circle. I get up, work out. What I, time do you get up? Are you I get up person? at 4.45, yeah. Ooh, girl, you're with me. That's I love the mornings. The air is cleaner in the mornings. How about Brian? Does he get up early? He has in the past. No, I don't, I'm not talking about once or twice. I mean, like, you know, what's his... So you're a morning person. I love that. So, I, yeah, I... But how's that go for you guys if you're a morning person and he's not? Well, right now, we're kind of operating on different shifts. We only cross midday. But truly, Brian is a morning person. I don't know. He does this all for a show, you know? He wants people to know that he's up in the morning if he's up. But... <laughs> <laughs> But I have like my little morning routine. I like to, I I do a little walk in the morning around and I like to see the same people at the same time, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) I need routine and... You are an old soul. (laughs) Yes. My grandma told me that when I was like 10. Like, you're a pretty old soul. (laughs) So um, I do that and then I come here. I'm usually here by like 8.30ish. And so then I'm here and... Whether I need to do, I I have a planner. I'm a planner person too. And I color code my planner based on whether I'm doing something for NC Casa as the attorney or doing something here. And I like plan out my days. I usually do that the night before. I, I need to know what I'm like doing the next day. And yeah, I, I like to work out. I see that as my social time if I go to the gym. And I like to cook. I have a couple autoimmune issues and my doctor told me years ago the best thing I could do was exercise and eat healthy so I really spend a lot of time doing both of those things that's that's great so you're not only the backbone and structure of the organization and the and the physical protection I may add for Brian Lewis which is you know he certainly needs that yeah. but you are the engine that keeps the company going so it's a well, that's the thing only I can make fun of Brian <laughs> oh, is that it? Oh, no. if someone no, no. else does I'm coming for you and I mean that to whoever <laughs> she has a very particular set of skills <laughs> Okay, so Sky, um, what do people misunderstand about you most frequently? What, what's something that you think they just don't get? So this answer has to come from other people, I think, because I'm, I think like, oh, yeah, like I'm just, I'm very straightforward with people. You ask me a question, I'll answer the question, and that's about it. But I've heard from other people, I won't name names. That's fair. That people see me as maybe, I don't want to use the word, um, <laughs> <laughs> like. Did you say Grinch? I didn't, I didn't catch that. Um, but I have been described that way by people yeah. who didn't know me. And once the, I think that it takes me a while to win people over. I feel like I know you. I, mm-hmm. I met you when I came up. And, and I think that uh, it's fair to say it takes people a while to get to know you but I see I think you're quiet and I think you're a little more reserved than Brian who will talk to a stranger for three hours um you would never do that Mm -mm. um so I I could see people sort of not having an accurate take on your personality I think that's fair yeah I had a senator say to me once that he assumed that I seemed like the type of person. Yeah, a princess. Yeah, right? who is yeah. never wanted for anything. And I don't want to give off that perception, certainly. Yeah. And I sat down with him probably weeks later and I said, I have a bone to pick with you. You think this about me? Or, you know, why don't you like me? Right, <laughs> and, right. um, you know, he was like, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. This is just the vibe you kind of give off. Yeah. So I may not be the most personable in those short interactions that you sure. have with legislators. Like you have known me long enough to know me on a deeper level. But I think if 
you're in someone's office for 10 minutes yeah. and I only say, oh, the technical answer to your question is this. And that's all I say. It's, it's right. hard to know that. Yeah. I mean, you're not there to hang out in a social setting. You're there to ask questions and answer questions. And, and I get that. And I, I could see that being a, um, just something that people mistake you for. I think that's pretty reasonable. So now I get to turn your question on you. Okay. Uh, if you had a magic wand and you could change things about our environment, our political environment, where we are today, what would you change? In North Carolina specifically, I think that for every bill, you have to have a member of the other party on it. It could be two Republicans and one Democrat on the Senate side or half and half. And you will see that legislation that I file for my clients, they are bipartisan bills. And I think that's really important. I know there are some issues that, you know, maybe you couldn't do that on, but those aren't my problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. You know, I think the majority of bills end up being um, unanimous bipartisan yeah. votes anyway. And, uh, you know, I, I do have some friends down there on the other side uh no secret senator kirk debbie here and i are very close um also i got a good friend that uh will tell you that there's a fine bill on the floor senator paul lowe good friend of mine that i enjoy spending time with um you know and and don da senator don davis and i are from the same area so i i can appreciate that especially when the Again, the vast majority of bills are, you know, unanimous and bipartisan in the votes. So I can understand that. There are some <laughs> that uh, don't really meet that standard. Yeah. You know, we, we've heard a lot about um, tax cuts and, and school choice and things of that nature. It'd be kind of hard. But yeah. uh, I think your idea works for the majority of legislation we see. Yeah. I, I did a TV show been a couple of months ago now with representative robert reeves the uh, house minority leader and senator dan blue you know representative reeves was advocating for tax cuts and i make some comments about that we want to join together on that one i'll file that bill with him when mm. we get back and, <laughs> well listen we appreciate your time today uh, both of you thanks for letting your listeners learn a little more about you and letting us into your your personal space and uh you guys certainly know how to do lobbying and politics better. Thank you. Thank you. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Well, our thanks to Jim Perry for uh, yeah. putting our good friend Sky David in the uh, guest seat for a change there. That's uh, fascinating to learn more about Sky and uh, her life and her work as a lobbyist. And uh, Jim Perry, you know, with me and Perry, uh, Brian, you've got the two <laughs> best radio voices in the General Assembly. So I agree. I really was a DJ for a number of years, and I think Perry uh, has missed his calling as a voiceover. Jim Perry could do voiceover <laughs> and make a lot of money doing commercials and reading books and that kind of thing, Jim he, Perry. He really could. All right, so I'm going to pitch an idea to you, Senator. Oh, and, boy. and not that we want any competition out there, but I think the Senator Mike Woodard, Senator Jim Perry podcast would be a hit. Boy, I'll tell you, knowing me and Perry, boy, we would mix it up and that would be fun. So... Uh, Perry, I'm game if you are, buddy. Let's get the uh, let's let's borrow these microphones, and, uh, and that would be fun. A few weeks ago, uh, you had submitted a tweet of the week, and I thought it was a great tweet of the week. It was Sam Watts had written a poem about the last day of session, and Sky David, she nixed it on a technicality that it was a retweet from two years ago. So, Senator, you have the honor this week of giving our Tweet of the Week. Okay, so, uh, yeah, Sky cut Sam Watts, who I thought still has one of the most brilliant tweets that, uh, <laughs> that we've had, but that's okay. You'll have to go find it. I think I convinced Sam to retweet it at the closing days of session. It took a children's book and had characters, and Sam added very clever comments. 
However, let's do a current Tweet of the Week, okay? Right. So are we ready? Let's do do we sing it? One, two, three. Tweet of the Week. So my Tweet of the Week comes from Corey Valencourt. Corey is the political editor for Smoky Mountain News, which is a independent newspaper, weekly paper there. What's his handle? His handle is at SMN underscore Corey, C-O-R-Y. Okay. SMN Smoky Mountain News. So some context. Um, this is west of Asheville, centered around Weaverville. And there's House District 119. Old political hands will know this story well. <laughs> Over the last decade, this seat has changed hands back and forth and back and forth between Joe Sam Queen, who won the seat in 2012 and 14, lost it to Mike Clampett in 2016, won it back from Clampett in 2018, lost it to Clampett, <laughs> who is now the current representative for House District 119. So these two guys have gone back and forth for a decade trading this uh, House District 119. So Corey's Tweet of the Week actually quotes Professor Chris Cooper uh, from Western Carolina University, and this is the quote that Corey has from Professor Cooper. Democrat Joe Sam Queen and Republican Mike Clampett have passed this district back and forth like a loose joint at a fish show. <laughs> um, now, if you're not hip, <laughs> fish is spelled P-H-I-S-H, yeah. and that, of course, is the famous jam band. Yeah. So anyway, so Joe Sam and Mike Clampett, you all have been going back and forth like the loose <laughs> joint at a fish concert. So anyway. I love it. I love it. Now, Senator, uh, I, I've referred to him as Senator Queen because Joe Sam Queen was a senator back in the 2000s, represented that area. He's not running for re-election this year. Yeah. I, or so, election. I want to say re-election, but election. Well, it would be re-election for Joe <laughs> Sam. I remember, was it one, I guess it was 2018, I, went, I was invited to be a guest at... Um, one of the freshman class uh, events. They had some training or something for the freshman class. And they said, hey, what did you come and do this? Joe Sam was there as a freshman legislator. And I said, dude, you were here before me. You cannot claim to be a freshman. So we put him on the spot and made him get on this panel and talk about uh, being in and out of the legislature. So uh, House District 119 was redrawn yeah. as, as part of the uh, decade change in, um, in population shift. So... My understanding is that Joe Sam was drawn his out of this district, so it looks like maybe Representative Clampett's uh, going to be okay and, and gets to keep the seat for two consecutive terms here. So, uh, but uh, so Mike, well, I guess we're going to be stuck with your uh, red, white, and blue flag bow ties and your colorful jackets <laughs> and so, the cooking. Oh, and your tennis shoes. And so the, anyway, and the cooking. You know, he cooks in yes. his office. Yes, they had to move him out of the LB, put him in the LOB because the cooking was just seeping into the chambers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Senator, let's talk about your car accident. I think it was about a month ago now. It's been six week, almost seven weeks now. Yeah. Uh, Coming home from church on a Sunday morning, um, a woman ran a red light and just plowed right into, uh, plowed into my car. Um, I was a little banged up. Uh, I shared the picture with Tom McKinnis, and it just went all over the General Assembly, but that's okay. I wanted folks to know I wasn't playing hooky or taking a walk on boats that week. I was a little banged up, not too bad, mostly superficial. I did have one slight crack in a, a vertebrae in my back, but it's healing fine, so... Uh -huh. Um, anyway, so, but the most painful thing was having to go get a new car right? in this economy and, you know, supply chains and all that. It was kind of nuts. So, uh, the neurologist says I'm healing on schedule, okay. which I think is, uh, uh, double talk for, you're going to be sore for a little while. Okay. So, uh, but, but, um, I'm on the mend and I really do appreciate all my colleagues, at the general assembly and folks in the lobbying community and, uh, in the uh, administration, reaching out and giving me good wishes and checking on me um, as I've been recovering since yeah. the wreck. Yeah, we're glad to have had you back. You were out for about a week. Mr. Week, um, they, uh, I was taken to Duke Hospital to be checked on, and I've told this story many times. I'll tell it throughout the rest of my life, I'm sure. The head of neurology comes and checks on me, and he said, 
you have a really strong spine. I said, oh, Doc, would you put on your letterhead, Woodard has a backbone? <laughs> and, if, and if I get that statement from him, I'm going to frame it and put it on my door at the General Assembly. Mike Woodard has a backbone, MD signed it. That's funny. So, Senator Woodard, how do you spend time when we're not in session? Well, so I'm one of those legislators who has another job, so it's uh, it's resuming activity at my job, picking up projects, um, and and you know working my job. Um, of course, in even numbered years, it's political season. Right. So we're cranking up on campaigns now. I'm in a relatively safe seat, so um, my uh, political task is helping colleagues get elected by fundraising, attending their events. I mean, I was at an event last night for uh, someone from down east who had a fundraiser in Chapel Hill. Now, figure that one out. Mm-hmm. The guy from Durham's in Chapel Hill helping a legislator from down east. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's what, what it takes to uh, get your candidates out there, get them known, and raise the money they need to, um, to get elected. Do you do much traveling? Do you have time beyond work, your professional life, your political life? One of the advantages of having a short, short session this time was that for the first time I can remember, my wife and I actually had more than just a few days in the mountains. Okay. Every year mid-July, her family has a family reunion up in Hendersonville where her great-grandfather um, built a house that the family still owns right in downtown Hendersonville, historic house. Um, and the family convenes there mid-July. And when I was on the Durham City Council, a lot of local governments take the month of July off. They pass a budget. Unlike the legislature, they have to have a balanced budget by June 30th by law. The legislature, nah, not so much. Right. But um, so a lot of local governments take a break in, in July. So when I was on the city council, I loved having the month of July off, and we would, all, we would go to the mountains for the family reunion and then just stay in the Asheville area for right. another week, 10 days, and we'd make side trips and just have a good time. I haven't been able to do that for 10 years right. until this year. So we actually had a, um, some time up in the mountains with the family reunion and then uh, just time for ourselves. So you know, I'll be traveling some. Um, next month, we're going to Washington, I've been selected by the um, council state governments. They've selected 30 legislators from around the country to come and participate in what they're calling an academy around, of all things, Medicaid. Oh, wow. Um, so I'll get to spend a few days in Washington. So um, uh, Sarah's going to tag along and um, we'll spend some time in Washington. We're going to visit some old friends of ours who live in Virginia. So uh, I think we're going to have a sort of circuitous path up through the middle part of Virginia, land in D.C., come back and uh, visit friends, go in and coming. Okay. guess you keep it penciled in when we're supposed to come in for these uh, one or two day sessions. But Those are on the calendar since <laughs> I'm usually one of the uh, go-to Democratic skeletons for these skeleton sessions. So. Yeah. So we were early into our podcast. Guy and I, I think we were about five episodes in. You called us and you said, Lewis. You're not signing off in the right way. Podcasts need to sign off. So, Senator Woodard, I am going to give you the honor of <laughs> signing off this week for the Do Politics Better podcast. So, Brian, it's been great being here um, and filling in for Sky this week. I'm, you know, you'll be glad to have her back, uh, so the quality will definitely improve. Oh, no. It's been great <laughs> having you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for doing this. Well, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Remember to like rate and subscribe to the podcast Um, and remember do politics better